Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 62 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. We are part of the Hooked on Wrestling podcast network. Thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to download us wherever you get your podcasts from. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean A.S., and I am joined as ever by my co-host, my co-host, <laughs> my co- Yes, he's... <laughs> Should we start that again? No! <laughs> Keep it in! Keep it in! My co-host! Oh, Jesus, what the fuck's a co-host? I am, I am your co-host. Sports <laughs> communist. Sports communist. I'm not letting you get away with any of these. We are keeping these. We are keeping it in. Can we go again, buddy? No, pal, we're live. Um, <laughs> Liam, how are you doing? Uh, do you know what? After what will go down in history as the best intro in Because WCW Podcast History, I am feeling great, even though it is indeed day 4,328 of the lockdown. Isn't it? In- Something like that. Or it might be day 62. Uh, it's, it's right up there with Goldberg's streak, I'm sure. But um, So, uh, so yeah, we have got ourselves uh, another pay-per-view review um, on this podcast, which I guess we can now say that this podcast has been actually officially endorsed by Eric Bischoff, who in a tweet this past week referred to our podcast as a great listen. Yes, uh, we are endorsed by Eric Bischoff. We are followed on social media by Vince Russo. It's official. We are the Spring Stampede 2000 of podcasts. We are the David Arquette world title reign of podcasts. <laughs> we we are the insert random weird fucking thing they did in that very short-lived stint uh, as co-bookers of podcasts. Uh, are, we the, uh, are we the ding-dongs of the podcast? No, world? that was Jim Hurd, you silly Billy. Oh, sorry. No. And um, I'm very pleased to say we've got a guest with us uh, today reviewing this pay-per-view. Um, a man who is one of my best friends in the wrestling business. In fact, one of my Aww. best friends in the whole world, really. Um, and he is someone who was literally there on day one because i've spoken before about the fact that my first tentative steps into the wrestling business were going to the hammerlock wrestling gym uh which was a little garage perched on the edge of a cliff in folkestone um in the summer of 1993 and one of the people who was in that same group with me uh was a man called alex who became uh, known as alex shane and the other person who came down from London with him, because his dad wouldn't let him travel on his own, was this man. So it's all his fault that Alex Shane is in the wrestling business. Um, <laughs> welcome to Because WCW to Adam Muscles Mansfield. 
Hello, how are you? Why blame me for Alex Shane's involvement in wrestling? I can't get the I can't get the concept on that one. We've got to blame someone. <laughs> no, someone yeah. has to take the rap for that. I'm always to blame for everything, but never mind. Always, always. <laughs> always. So um, <laughs> you are you are one of the genuinely one of the, in my opinion, unsung heroes of British wrestling. You 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 and me were among those people who kept things ticking over in the dark days of the mid-1990s when British wrestling really wasn't doing very well. Um, we have a lot of listeners in, in America and Canada and Germany and Australia um, who may not be aware of the phenomenon of Muscles Mansfield. So for those who may not be familiar with you, um, can, can you give us a, a little bit of a potted history, a little bit of background of your wrestling career? My uh, potted history. So I started off in 1993 down in a hammerlock gym where Dean showed up. He decided to get into the ring. He took one bump and he didn't like the bump. So he looked at me. He says, there's a fella that likes to take bumps and pointed towards me. And I just, and uh, I was decided to be the crash test tummy for all the moves that Andre <laughs> decided to show us all. Um, and that was it. Uh, went through various gimmicks, as Dean may know, my various gimmicks. And then it was one summer's night in June. I was in a mixed tag match with Justin Richards. Um, we know Justin Richards, don't we, Dean? We do indeed. Yeah. He has been on this very podcast. Absolutely. As well. um, so me and Justin Richards in, uh, against Alex Shane and the Truth Tansy Cook. Do you remember, uh, that's a blast from the past. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember her. But, yeah, but I didn't have a gimmick at that point, and I was nine stone soaking wet. Um, didn't have not much of a body on me and then the character came about in Andre's living room where we put the ring away because I was flexing my biceps where I didn't have no biceps at the time <laughs> the crowd was sort of laughing and then a song came on that Andre said that's it and the song was Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart and then and he also had a robe that he wanted he to get a, shot off yeah when he had a robe that he wanted to get shot off conned me out of 50 quid did he come yet? But I don't know. But I managed to, I, he managed to get fifty quid for it, nonetheless. I'll always remember him walking. We we all we all stayed quite often. We'd stay at Andre's house after a show, yeah. you know, especially if we had two or you know two or three four shows on the bounce. Yeah. And um, yeah, he just walked down the stairs with this outrageous looking robe it was like a blue silk robe with with yeah. various stars and rockets and meteors and yeah. stuff on it and didn't have like a striped lining inside it, it had and, a striped lining inside yeah blue yeah. and white striped lining um and, and that, yeah that to debut this gimmick in margate and i said to justin i hated it i didn't want to even want to do the gimmick i didn't like it hated it i think jim the anvil neidhart was on that tour when mm. I debuted the gimmick, and he just looked at me and looked at Justin, give us a disgusting look. He said, "What the fuck are you looking at?" And then, <laughs> off and then went out and done the gimmick, and then Justin, and then I, I still hated it during the match. And Justin said, "Go with it, go with it, go with it," and then I just made it into my own to what I am today. So, but it, it I remember the, so the the gimmick was basically that you you would have this towel around your neck yeah. underneath the robe, and you'd yeah. be puffing your chest out and. Yeah you couldn't see anything past the robe and you're called muscles Mansfield. And therefore the, the crowd would think that you're going to unveil this Rick rude, like physique. That's and right. then, you know, it was, as you say, is, you know, nine stones soaking wet, arms yeah. like pipe cleaners, whatever you want to think. And, but, but what made that gimmick, and this is what 
so so many people don't seem to get these days is that you portrayed that gimmick as if you truly genuinely believed that you had this tremendous physique that you were showing off to people oh yeah absolutely i mean i had to get into that mindset of that gimmick and i didn't really understand it at first um of course i hated the gimmick because i wanted was going to be something else in the in, in the wrestling business but time went on i sort of understood more of the gimmick I thought, yes, okay, this is going to work, and I am running with this, and I'm going to uh, run with this. Sorry, that was at me. Um, so, uh, so I run with the gimmick, and I had, and I just, and it just became my own. I just made it into my own character, and the character of Muscles Mansfield is like a Looney Tunes. It still wants to raid his muscles that he hasn't got, but there you go. I mean, I, I think at one point um, I was hitting the gym as well, and I went to Tunbridge. I did a show in Tunbridge, and then I did a double dark bicep pose. And I think he turned around to her, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Justin. I says, that's it. He's fucked the gimmick. He's got muscles now. He's fucked the gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, what? That's how I should not just go to the gym at all. You know? <laughs> yeah, just as Seamus can't go to the sunbeds, you yeah. can't go to the gym. I yeah. know. Yeah, and, never mind. And, um, and then at what point did you supplement the wrestling with actually training people? Um, what, is in regards of gimmick-wise or match-wise or? Just no, when 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 because I mean you and um, you and Justin became a, yeah. a very very well respected and well known team of of training new wrestlers around Britain. Yeah, yeah. When, that when did that start? Well, that came about um, uh, when Justin decided, uh, got a call from Sanjay Bagger to take over the LDN wrestling school, um, and then Justin rang me. Um, he says, "Look, I'm going to take. I've been. I've had a call from Sanjay." to take over the LDN wrestling school, but I need someone with me. I says, Justin, I haven't taught someone now to wrestle. I don't, I don't, I haven't, I, don't, I ain't got no teaching capabilities or teaching qualities. He says, no, 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 it's fine. You have, it's fine. And at the time he had a frozen shoulder, so he couldn't take much bumps. So I think there might be, um, there might be a, um, uh, an alternative for me to go with him on this uh, LDN training school malarkey, you know? Mm-hmm. So I could take the bumps again. Go figure. <laughs> There's a theme running. Through There's a theme here, running through here. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so then it, be- it just it just became the the coaches of LDN um, wrestling school, and we've just taught like the likes of Rhea O'Reilly, um, uh, Aisha, the Amazon. Um, who else could we? T- uh, Jack Sex Smith. We taught. Uh, he was in our school. Um, there, was, there was so many. My, my memory is shocking, Dean. So you might have to help me out if there's any names out there. Oh, Kareem, Kareem the Batch. What's his name? Oh, called? Sebastian. Yeah. Sebastian. Yeah. He was at the wrestling yeah. school. He was ready to quit, and I persuaded him to stay. And then obviously from off. from LGN, you then went on to there was the Justin Richards School of Wrestling, yeah. independent to that, which had a yeah. visit from Kurt Angle. And I think the thing that also I I, I noticed with anyone who was a trainee of of yours and Justin's was they weren't only taught about working in the ring, but out of the ring and the etiquette, because every, every one of them was always totally respectful and professional. And they had, they just had the right attitude as well as uh, being able to, to be damn good wrestlers as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I tried when, when I was teaching with Justin, that's what I wanted to instill into the students as well, because that's what we was taught with through Andre. You know, it's just to be strict and be it and be polite or not. Uh, you know what I mean? Just hold your own. But you have to be polite and respectful. Yes. And he's always respectful and polite with Andre, you know. Um, Indeed. 
you, you had a laugh of him, but he, there was that element, there was that line where you had to be respectful and you had to be mindful of, oh, is this good and does this look good and does that look real, you know? And that's what he was taught, and that's what I tried to get into my teachings as well. Mm. Make it look more believable. Don't make it look so flowery so much. You can make it look flowery, but in a believable way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, it'll be interesting um, as this uh, podcast goes on and we look through this show. Um, I'm sure that there'll be uh, times during this show when you'll be uh, watching some matches with trainers' eyes and giving us your thoughts on that. But um, So you've picked uh, WCW's Halloween Havoc 97. What made you choose that show out of all the ones that you could have picked? Well, I was racking my brain. I was really racking my brain. And I was at work and I was discussing this with... Um, a friend of mine at work um, who's a wrestling fan and I was telling him he's like, he's interested in this. And I said, I've got to pick a WCW pay-per-view. And he just said, Halloween Havoc 97. And this is to my friend. If he's going to listen and I'll get him to tune in, it's Nico Dwyer at work. He says, just ch- pick Halloween Havoc, Havoc 97. So, okay. So, Nico Dwyer, this is your fault why I've picked Halloween Havoc 1997. <laughs> well, well, it has got one of the arguably one of the greatest matches in WCW's history and there's a few other monumental uh, matches for good or bad reasons but um, before we go to uh, to look at that show Liam can you just uh, kind of give us a bit of a background how did we get to this point in WCW history what had been going on okay well it's safe to say that come Halloween Havoc 97 WCW were absolutely shit hot They were at the peak of their successes in 97. They were everywhere. They were making great money. They were pulling great crowds. Now, the funny thing is, is we don't do these pay-per-views chronologically. We have covered already. We've covered Havoc 96 with Mike Quackenbush. We've covered Halloween Havoc 98, which I believe was a very early pay-per-view we did when we didn't have any friends, Dean. We had no one went to join us. Oh, no. But we've covered both of those. And the funny thing is, if you look at those three Havocs in a row, it's amazing how WCW went from Halloween 96, we talked about how cool it was getting. There was some really good creative stuff there. They had a good time. They were going places. Yeah, in case in point, Halloween Havoc 97, they were top dogs. Everything was going great for them. They were they were just red hot. And Halloween Havoc 98, they were still a big force. They still had good numbers, but the wheels were coming off and you could see it. And then I suppose if you go to Halloween Havoc 99, uh, you can see just how bad a state it is in. So yeah, measure the Havocs and it's, uh, it's no coincidence that everyone loves to pick these because not only are they just the it's the most memorable event WCW ever did. It's you know they have big events like Starcade and the Great American Bash and Super Bowl, but Halloween Havoc is just you know, you think WCW when you think of a Havoc, and yeah, it seems to be a great way of plotting the timeline of the company. What how was the company doing a Havocs? Case in point with this one. We've got Hogan and Piper in the main event in a cage. The the tagline being is they've had two big pay-per-view matches already, Starcade 96 and Super Bowl 7, and this is going to be the rubber match to decide it. Non-title, because why why not be non-title at a major pay-per-view, for fuck's sake? And it's in a, and it's in a cage. You'd assume well, there, is a, there is a reason, Liam. There is a reason it's non-title in, in a pay-per-view main event. Hang on, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, because WCW. 
Correct. Five points. Yes. I win. I win. I win. Anyway, getting back on topic. Uh, yes. Yeah, so they're apparently going to settle their feud because everyone at this point kind of knows that the end game for Starcade is, of course, Sting, which is fair enough. But um, yeah, so it's Hogan Piper here again. We've got quite a few other feuds being settled. Uh, and a, a lot of the direction of the company is going really well because we are headed towards Hogan versus Sting at Starcade, the big retribution for the New World Order. And nothing could possibly fuck that up, could it, Dean? Oh, of course not. Absolutely no. nothing at all. No. And of course, Starcade uh, 97 was the uh, subject of the very first episode of Because WCW, um, which uh, you can you can download uh, at becausewcw.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. But be warned, it was the first time we'd ever done this and we do sound like we're recording it in toilet cubicles. Dean does. I sounded great. OK, fair it is. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to... Because WCW. Now choke on that. Right, so we are in the, the MGM Grand in Las Vegas for Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc 97. So you know Randy Savage is going over already. Um, our main event, as Liam said, is the so-called age in the cage between 44-year-old Hulk Hogan or Hollywood Hulk Hogan and 43-year-old Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, the difference between this and their feud from 12 years previous is that the roles are now reversed. Hogan is the heel, Piper is the face. Um, our commentary team is a three-man unit of Tony Schiavone with Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan. So let's see how long it takes Heenan to get fed up with Dusty this time around. Um, they mention how they're in this very same arena for last year's Havoc. And this is actually where Piper made his WCW debut by coming out at the end of the event to confront Hogan. So we go straight into match number one, which is an all Japanese clash as Yuji Nagata with Sunny Ono takes on Ultimo Dragon. Um, so WCW never really had a good record of promoting Japanese wrestlers successfully, probably with the one exception of the great Muta. Um, so let's see how the crowd responds to this one. Um, According to Wikipedia, Nagata had been in WCW for the last six months, but I don't seem to recall him being around for that long. Um, was that was he just barely featured, or have I just remembered things badly there, Liam? He he would just show up and bugger off and show up and bugger off. Really, it's funny hearing him talk about this being like a a, a long simmering uh, situation, storyline feud. When yeah, they they would cameo back and forth, wouldn't they? So oh, very oh. on and off. Okay, so Mike Tanay's joined the commentary booth this one to explain the background of this feud because there's no hope of Dusty doing that. Um, the early exchanges see each move, each move get the appropriate boo or cheer from the crowd. So, you know, there is a hope that we'll get a responsive audience here. Um, Nagata lays in some solid kicks to Dragon's back. There's no fucking thigh slapping in this one. Um, a big pile driver gets a two count for Nagata. Dragon fires back, lands an Asai moonsault to the outside. Raven's flock are shown arriving in the arena and taking their seats at ringside. Which I've always thought, how much revenue would they have lost by 
not being able to sell those seats. But that's a, another thought for another day, I guess. Um, while the front few rows in the front of the hard cam don't seem to be, be responding too much, the overall noise level in the arena is very good. So the opener is doing its job. Um, Nagata slaps on his Nagata lock leg lock, but Dragon crawls over to the ropes before the Dragon sleeper attempt is also halted by his opponent getting to the ropes. A top rope hurricane runner from Dragon gets a big pop. He's favouring his elbow, though, having had it smacked over the top turnbuckle by Nagata earlier on. Um, this break gives Nagata time to recover. Another Dragon sleeper attempt is countered into a Fujiwara armbar on the bad arm, and Dragon immediately taps out to give Nagata the win in 9 minutes 42 seconds. Post-match, Nagata holds Dragon's arm out, and Ono gives it a boot for good measure. So we often talk about the art of the opener in uh, this, and, and Adam, in your your time, as especially as Muscles of Mansfield, we always say how important the opener is. You'd have done plenty of opening matches in your time. How did you uh, think this one went? Uh, yeah, the opener. Um, didn't really understand the storyline of it. They didn't really tell a story, in my opinion. Um, I should have kept it a bit more uh, simple. I mean, the Japanese wrestling art is, was wasted, I felt, on this WCW crowd because they weren't really into it as uh, the pops were going, but they weren't really that much into it. I mean, Heenan put a, uh, said a good point. Um, what did he say? He says, uh, sorry, I'm just looking at me notes what I made. That's all right. So, uh, so uh, it looked like Ultima, it, all in the match, Ultimo Dragon just wanted to get his moves in. He didn't want to tell a particular story. So um, Nagata was working, uh, was working on the arm, and then he went for the leg lock, which Heenan said. He said uh, he, uh, he's working on the arm, then he went for the leg lock. That didn't make sense at all which didn't make sense to me. So he was working on the arm and went for his leg lock to try and get a submission. But in the end, he did get a win with the, uh, with the, um, the, with arm. the arm bar. Yeah. So that didn't make sense whatsoever to me. And it did make me chuckle. And of course, with the manager at ringside, I mean, I would have made use of the manager at ringside. The manager was just made redundant, really. And then just added him at the end of it, you know. Maybe mm-hmm. he could have got a bit more heat and got the crowd a bit more going into the first match. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, and Liam, we talk about the art of the open always, and do you really want, would you say you want more known characters or more larger-than-life characters for the opener? Uh, Not necessarily known, because one thing I always argue is that, you know, sitting here as a fan, I am pumped at the start of a show, mostly. And I've always said that it's it's a good opportunity for the bookers to to put in guys like this who don't have so much character and storyline um, investment from the crowd. They can go in, soak in that crowd that's already hot and go out there. And if you combine that with a lot of energy, a lot of work rate, and, you, and you've got to be willing to work the crowd a bit as well, that usually does great. And then... Later on in the show, you'll have matches where the storylines have properly unfolded rather than just showing up every couple of months like this one appears to have. And um, that will already get a pop because, you know, people will pop for Hogan. They'll pop for the NWO feud. They'll pop for the Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero feud. They know all this stuff. So stick in some guys who are not that invested and there's not much heat in the storyline fair enough but as you guys already touched upon they didn't really take advantage of that situation they could have we know both these guys can work a lot better a lot harder and 
they didn't really try to connect with that audience. And I'm, I'm sure it's a different kettle of fish for Japanese wrestlers with an American crowd. But if you're there, you're going to try and make the most of it. And they didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think the crowd were into it to a degree. They were certainly making noise in the right places. But yeah. They, they were yeah, willing they... to. They, I, I think this, this lies on the feet of the wrestlers, the, the fans. Like, mm. like most packed crowds on a, a for an opening match, they're, they're, they're there to be taken. They're there to be dragged along for the first chapter of the ride. And they, yeah. they could have done better there, really. But yeah, but as we know, Japanese wrestling is much more about what you do in the ring than playing out to the to the crowd. So, so yes, but, um, okay. So, um, we then had disco inferno talking to what we discovered from uh, our last episode in the, in, in the interview with Guy Evans, the author of the nitro book, it was the much underestimated WCW wrestling.com about his intergender match later on with Jacqueline. Um, and as he, uh, comes out with a load of, uh, misogynistic lines, uh, Jackie herself confronts him and chases him off the set. And then it's time for the dreaded unadvertised bonus match, which normally tells people not to give a monkey about this, but maybe this one would be different because it pits Chris Jericho against Gado from um, Japan. And who, and they they are basically, well, in, in, in real life, these two are very good friends. They go back many, many years from the old WAR promotion in Japan. So, yes, Jericho's managed to get his old mate onto a pay-per-view. So this should be good because normally good friends make good matches. Um, Tanae is still on commentary, given uh, an extensive background on Gado, talking about his uh, history with Jericho, as well as other WCW stars like Benoit and Six. Um, Jericho is in charge of the early portion of the match until Gado clotheslines him over the top rope and take, then takes over. Jericho then turns the tables, puts Gado up top to attempt a top rope Hurricane Rana. There's some kind of miscommunication as Gado doesn't turn over and lands on his front. Tanay says he's blocked it on commentary. Both men seem to be okay, but it was a very scary moment to watch that happen. Um, the end comes soon afterwards, actually. Gado misses a half-hearted-looking kick come leg drop off the top Jericho scoops his legs up for the match winning lion tamer submission in 7 minutes and 18 seconds and uh, in my opinion the best unadvertised bonus match we've covered in because WCW history but Adam what do you think of this one? Uh, this one again it was um, very much like what uh, Chris Jericho just wanted to get some moves in there was no real psychology to the match um I'd like to see Ghetto do uh, get more on top of Chris Jericho again to tell a bit more of a story into a match. Um, and the Frankenstein, oh my God, I thought he was. I thought Chris Jericho was dead. What on earth was he thinking? Something um, went wrong. Uh, didn't it, it? Yeah, wrong. it was. I think I thought that was a wasted move. That should have been. If he hit it, that should have been a finisher. Um, again, it was a, a. Again, it was just Chris Jericho wanted to get as many moves in as he get, as he could against. Gado to make himself look good and not working and telling the story of a match. That's that was that's my opinion. Yeah, for, for me, I, I think about this match and what we just said about what was the opener. Maybe, maybe this would have slotted in first a little better, especially as an yes, exactly what I match. Thought. Would have gone in cold. Jericho could have handled the aspects of getting the crowd into it, but there was one little thing about his interactions with the crowd that did make me smile. I don't know if you guys noticed, but especially during his entrance, but but also at other parts during the match, he is being the baby face and he's, he's getting to a stage now. He's really getting a bit sickly with it and going over the top 
with his mannerisms, it reminded me a little bit of when Shawn Michaels would oversell for Hulk Hogan in that match. And also Ooh. another infamous one is Austin Aries. Throughout wherever he's wrestled, he, he has been a little bit infamous. If he's not happy with something or the direction of it, he will kind of just deliver malicious compliance and like overdo it with a babyface act because he wants to be a heel. And as we know from the books and interviews that Jericho's given, at this point in his WCW career, he did indeed want to turn heel. He was desperate to turn heel. That would come a few months later. But f- putting all those pieces together and looking at the way he was really hamming the the babyface role here, I'm starting to think, yeah, he does it. He's, he's protesting. He, he doesn't want to be a yeah. babyface. He's trying to ram it down the throats. That made me laugh. And another thing that really made me laugh was a commentary trying to put in these little subtle things like, what was it? Uh, I think Tanay said, oh yeah, he's a big fan of 1970s Memphis style wrestling. Yeah, yeah, which is like code for don't expect anything decent offense-wise to come out of him. Um, (laughs) As much as I enjoyed the match, I do remember that Gado and Jado were, um, they weren't very well liked by... American and European fans back in the days of tape trades and you, the internet forums in the 90s and early 2000s, they were pretty much despised by a large pocket of them because they weren't the the Ligers or the Super Delphins mm. or things like that. So, uh, yeah, it, it just made me laugh as a, like, a little bit of code of he's he's going to be very punchy kicky and he's not going to do yes. anything spectacular. Don't worry, fans. I... There's Mysterio Guerrero to come later. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do remember that they um in the nineties they had a t shirt um which uh, just said fuck you we're Gado and Jado which uh, was you know <laughs> subtle and to the point. But um the th- I suppose yeah the thing that, that people forget is that for all of the, the spectacular aerialists like your your Mysterios and your Ligers, you need people to be the base for that aerialism, which is where the role that, that Gado fulfills. And that's why he was always booked. Um, and obviously since, uh, since then he became, um, he became very well known and very well respected as, as a booker. And he also really tapped into that unlikable quality as the uh, manager of, of Jay White, because uh, he was, he was with Okada for a while, but Okada's time as a hill was fleeting and oh. he became a bit of a sore fit, didn't he? Coming out with Okada, and they made that that clever switch where he would he would defect and go inside with Switchblade Jay White, and and those two are just made for each other. They're so easy to dislike, and I mean that as a compliment. A great act. And um, do you think, yeah, you know, where we said about how Jericho had talked about how he he, he wasn't feeling. He wasn't feeling it, shall we say? Would I guess, you know, based on what you said with that background, that kind of then explains where Adam has seen that you know that that Jericho definitely doesn't seem to be fulfilling the role that you'd want him to fulfil in this because he's really not feeling it. Yeah, he, he he was hamming it up on the expressions, and you guys went in depth on some of the moves and the and the frightening aspects of it. I, I think it's. It's, it's me putting two and two together and hoping the answer in real life isn't five. But I think it's it's it, it correlates to me on the timeline with everything he has said himself in his books, in interviews with places like Power Slam, the, the British wrestling magazine had a great interview with him, pretty much right bang between him 
no longer appearing on WCW TV and appearing for the first time WWE. He did that interview with them and he said the same thing. He said it in his mm-hmm. books. He he was itching to be a heel. He was sick of being the white meat baby face that Eric Bischoff was adamant that he was destined to be forever at one point. Okay, so we're backstage with Mean Gene, who clearly loves it in Las Vegas, and he's interviewing Deborah McMichael, who is managing a mystery wrestler against her estranged husband, Steve Mongo McMichael. Mongo then emerges and essentially has a domestic with his missus live on pay-per-view. Uh, and uh, as often happens, art imitates life because after 12 years of marriage with him being an NFL footballer, it only took one year in the wrestling business for them to legitimately divorce um, almost a year to the day later. So we are now up for match number three, and it is title versus mask for, well, the uh, the mask of Rey Mysterio against the WCW Cruiserweight title of the champion Eddie Guerrero. Mysterio comes out in a kind of purple tribute Spider-Man outfit, but not close enough on the Brad Armstrong scale to initiate a lawsuit with... Uh, it was Marvel, wasn't it? Sub Spider-Man? Yes. Anyone? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm never <laughs> been good... I've never been good on my comics. Um, Eddie comes out looking greasy, sleazy, and massively heelish with the title belt casually slung over his shoulder. Um, Before the match even begins, there's a huge Eddie sucks chant. Um, This is a hot crowd, and they've now got people who are going to be uh, playing up to the crowd. Um, The early action is back and forth. The pace is absolutely blistering. Tanay tells us that Ray has had eight matches with his mask at stake previously, all of which he's obviously won. Um, he also states that Mysterio has a 2-0 record over Guerrero on Nitro. Um, Eddie starts ripping Mysterio's mask while locking him in an abdominal stretch. What a heel, although this mask is part of the bodysuit Mysterio is wearing, so it's not going to come off entirely. Um, our first major highlight of the match sees Ray in an armbar. He leaps up to stand on the middle of the top rope. Then he backflips into a DDT on Eddie. Um, Ray then misses a dive to the outside. Guerrero throws him back into the ring locks on a camel clutch variation rips a bit more of Ray's mask off uh, meanwhile Tene continues to excitedly give us a Lucha Libre history lesson on the commentary later on in the match Mysterio gets hooked up in the tree of woe in the corner Guerrero lands a drop kick on his helpless opponent but when he takes a run up to go for another one Mysterio pulls himself up like a sit up Guerrero slides groin first into the ring post and his face is a picture um Ray follows this up with a dive over the ring post onto Guerrero at ringside and gets a near fall later with a snap Hurricane Rana. He then lands a somersault plancher over the top rope, which he switches into a Hurricane Rana on the floor, which is fantastic to watch. And when you see it on the replay, you see, and I'm sure you'll you'll appreciate this more than anyone, Adam, that how much of that work is actually down to Guerrero in catching him and then helping him move his momentum from one direction to another. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, this match was uh, one of my favourite. It was a brilliant match. Um, the, the story of it was absolutely told to a T. Typical little man trying to get his high flying in, uh, high flying in um, and then Eddie Guerrero just grounds him or just counters him. And then um, so Mysterio is trying to get his high flying in to try and make Eddie work or try and catch Eddie off guard. And it was just, I just couldn't fault the storytelling of this match. I, I absolutely loved it. I was hooked and I just, it was brilliant. 
It's well, better um, than the WrestleMania 21 match. Was it WrestleMania mm. 21? Yeah. 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 Which was sad. Oh. Yeah. Um, so Guerrero hits a hard, hard power bomb, but he sees Mysterio's body bounce violently off the canvas, but it only gets a two count. Guerrero's face, as he complains to the ref, once again is an absolute picture. Just perfect selling. Um, an increasingly frustrated Guerrero takes Mysterio up to the top rope for a splash mountain, a razor's edge power bomb, but Mysterio counters it into another Hurricane Rana, hooks Guerrero's legs, wins the match and the title, and saves his mask to a huge pop in 13 minutes 51. Um, and as he starts to give an emotional speech to the camera, he's attacked by Guerrero, so the feud is not over. But, but yeah, one of the best matches in WCW history, surely, isn't it, Adam? Absolutely. I mean, I absolutely loved it, as I said. What I said before, the storytelling of the match, um, the, the pace that it started, and they kept the pace going. It was just absolutely outstanding. I, I loved it. It's brilliant. Reminds me of back in my day when I moved like that. <laughs> <laughs> and and again, you I mean you've got with this, you've got two people who know each other very well, who work with yeah. each other very well. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. and the crowd know, and it's yeah. it's distinctive distinctive personalities i mean eddie guerrero is such a good heel at this point in time oh, such absolutely a good but then you could put that match in some if they didn't know him and it would be tell a good story it would tell the story so if, it, if the crowd didn't know him i reckon it would have told a story with the with the punters mm. um and the crowd would have been on point with it because the story was told as far as um, i'm yeah. concerned with that you you could yeah absolutely you could show that match to someone who'd never seen those two before and within the first 10 seconds, you know who the baby face is, who the heel yeah. is, and what's going on, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I guess this is this is something, you know, going back to, to our background, and I'm guessing what you trained to other people as well, yeah. but when, you know, when we were doing British shows in the 90s, there was no internet, there was no real tape trading, and... No. And a lot, I mean, you had obviously a, a, a small number of people who religiously came to all the shows, but you were always told, you know, to assume that people didn't, had never seen you before. And yeah, therefore, you... yeah, even if you went back to the same venue, you went back, you went back to that venue as a fresh character and you had to work them. You had to work the punters, you know what I mean? To make sure you did get, did get that heat and that reaction from them. So they could walk away. He says, Oh yeah, I do remember him. And the more you work and the more they remember you, but you always go to a, the venue to say they don't know you. I mean, even now I always go to a venue that I've been back before uh, I've been back to and I still work them as I would do anyway, mm. you know, just to so that I am who I am because there might be someone in there that don't know who I am, you know. Yeah, you want to bring them back to bring the numbers back into the into the wrestling into the uh, into the venue so the promoter would be happy and then absolutely a bit more. <laughs> yeah, Liam, what do you uh, think of this one? Yeah, I mean, what one of the trigger words I always had when it comes to talking to people about wrestling is it always irked me a little bit when people would say, oh, those wrestlers, they're so crisp, aren't they? They're so crisp. It it just always came across as a pretentious phrase people use that made them sound like they're in the know. Oh, yes, these wrestlers are much crisper than than these wrestlers. But you look at this match and there's no other adjective that comes to mind because everything they do is just absolutely spot on. And they they do so they do this degree of accuracy at such a great pace as well. And when you compared this, Adam, to their their big match at WrestleMania 21, which obviously did, didn't come anywhere close to this, unfortunately. But two of the things that, that struck me as why, a major one of those two, is the animosity. As you said, there's a feud here facing the hill. Yeah. And not only are they performing these moves 
so nicely, so fluidly, so, yes, crisply. Uh, they're doing it while still carrying that breakneck speed, that animosity, like they want to hurt each other, like everything is on the line, like they want to be the better man. It just comes through, and you completely forget about everything else while you're watching this. It's that good. The other thing I um, re really like about this, that the... Uh, WrestleMania 21 didn't is obviously the fact that Mysterio infamously had um, costume problems at WrestleMania. Yeah. Whereas this one is one of his most famous ones yet. You'll be you'll be pleased, and I did look up beforehand, Dean, what the influence is. It's not an actual Spider-Man. It's basically it's the it's the Phantom. Uh, there was a, a film in 1996 with Billy Zane, and it was panned. It was awful. But the right. Phantom is a character that was a bit more uh, of a cultural no at the time. And yeah, on Mysterio, the outfit looks great. And it's one of his most memorable ever as a result. And he wasn't adjusting his mask every five seconds. But the one <laughs> thing I'll say, most people give this, like, say, like, best one of the best matches ever. You know, anyone who uses snowflakes will say five snowflakes. But the one thing that takes it away from me is that post-match thing, which I thought was just daft. Let Ray have his moment. You've got nitros to continue the fucking fuse. Let him hold it. He's got his mask on the line. All the... You know all the things they've put into this, all the all the stakes they're trying to convey. Ah, oh, this this is everything. This is a must-win. He's got the title. He saved his mask. Give him 60 seconds in the fucking ring with a camera on him. Yeah. They could have had Guerrero jump him during an acceptance speech 24 hours later on Nitro, and yeah. you've got your rematch. Give him his moment. Yeah. So that that left a sour taste in my mouth. And for me, it does knock something off of it. But bell to bell, you, ca you can't dispute it. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I do agree. It did surprise you when that happened. I'd forgotten that it happened. It didn't, yeah. it didn't yeah. need to be there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Mean Gene shields the hotline. Then we go to a black and white NWO promo with Hogan and Bischoff. And Bischoff says that Hogan will not wrestle tonight unless WCW can provide him with a written guarantee that Sting will not be allowed in the building in any capacity, not even cleaning up the building afterwards. So we then go from uh, Mysterio and Guerrero to Steve Mongo McMichael. Um, oh, <laughs> and Deborah's mystery wrestler is revealed to be Alex Wright, and the sigh of disappointment from everyone sucks the atmosphere right out of the garden. Um, and I, I don't know how long Mongo has been wrestling at this point. It's been a little while, but this is still the most basic match you could ever see, with Wright working around a wrist lock from Mongo for an eternity to start with. Um, the commentators spend the whole match talking about Hogan's threat and basically teasing that the main event of the pay-per-view that everyone has already spent their money on isn't going to happen. And I guess, as a commentator myself, it is very difficult. It is a test of your ability to commentate credibly on a bad match. Um, so I guess the easy way out, if you're having a bad match happen in front of you, is just not talk about it and talk about Hulk Hogan instead. Um, Michael hoists right up for a tombstone pile driver, which is quite frankly terrifying, but he does manage to execute it safely. Um, but he can't get the pinfall because the referee is distracted by Deborah. And when I say that, I actually mean that Deborah does nothing, but the ref just decides to turn around and talk to her. At this point, Bill Goldberg jumps 
jumps into the ring and gives Mongo a spear, which Mongo doesn't really take very well, and a jackhammer. He then drops right on top of Mongo while the ref has to pretend not to have seen anything and Karen arguing with Deborah, who's continued to forget what she's supposed to do and has stepped back down from the ring apron. Anyway, the ref counts to three to give um, Alex Wright the win. Uh, in six minutes and 31 seconds. Deborah then gives Goldberg Mongo's Super Bowl ring, presumably in some sort of payment, uh, but then he decks right and gives right the spear and the jackhammer as well for good measure. Um, Adam, were you uh, watching this through your fingers? Uh, yeah, I was watching it under me covers. It was like a horror story. I felt sorry for Alex Wright being put in that position because he was a... He was a good worker, you know, and just being put in that position was hard for him because he was leading the match all the way through as best as he could with a a, a Mongo, Michael. Uh, it was just terrible. And how the hell the referee didn't see Bill Goldberg spear him. And then he, he could notice the referee look round and then try uh, picking that Mongo for a, a jackhammer. Yes. It's just, it's just so awful. It's just, um, yeah. There's nothing more I can say on that one apart from, oh, my God, poor Alex Wright. But then again, that that part of the distracting the ref, and I speak from experience here yeah. as, a, as a manager, that is down to the manager to basically keep the referee distracted until it's time for them to turn around, at which point you tell them turn around or you just yeah. walk back. So the fact that Deborah had gone back down the ring steps kind of yeah. says that she, she – that was a, a – yeah. Ricket from her, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, what what do you do? You talk about what you had for breakfast, but she didn't have <laughs> a lot for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, uh, just, I just felt sorry for Alex right all the way through. He tried his hardest to get a decent match out of Mongo, if you can get a decent match out of Mongo. Um, yeah, but I was disappointed in match number four. Yeah, it didn't really compare to match number three. No. Uh, this, Liam? Disappointed, Adam. That was polite. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is... This oh, match... that was fucking horrendous. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Well, because I, this match goes down in folklore. This is one of the most infamous because WCW matches in the 10-year history of the company. Uh, guys like Matthew at Botchamania helped highlight it. Uh, and obviously, anyone worth a sort like the guys at remember DDT Digest, they, everyone used to hail this as just one of the most laughable things ever. Because there are so many moments in which the whole interference spot doesn't work. The, yeah, we, we, because Mongo's involved with wrestling's lousy, the whole thing is a joke. I will say one thing, though. I actually liked, if, if if this was done by people who are actually capable of their job, I liked on paper the premise of a manager picking a mystery opponent for their their nemesis, their wrestler they hate. And to everyone's surprise, they picked this you know, this, this schlub, this jobber to the stars. No offence, Alex, right? But at this stage, he's a, he's a lower mid-carder. People thinking, why pick him? We can have something else. They pick him, and it seems a bit of a bemusing choice. They have their match, and then suddenly this absolute beast comes out, destroys um, the, the enemy of the manager, puts the schlub on top, uh, the, the schlub beats their enemy and then the monster beats up the schlub as well. Uh, that could be done. Like, let's say, for instance, you, Dean, if you, if you were to have that storyline in the promotion where you were the manager and you had a schlub come out and face your enemy and, and 
deploy the monster to go back clean up on both of them. That I think that would come across really cool if you pick guys who, you know, can fucking wrestle. <laughs> so I yeah. like that. And another thing I've got to say I liked about this was, did you guys notice the, the spear that Goldberg delivered to Wright? He crept up on him and stalked him. And he was only like, you know, so to keep this topical, uh, he was not adhering to social distancing rules when Alex Wright turned around. He was already very close to him. Not the traditional spear where you run halfway across the ring to connect. He stalked him. He was very close to him. And then he basically just did like a tarantula lunge to get as soon as he turned over. And I actually really yeah. liked that. I thought it was a cool spear. I like to see wrestlers in today's climate, you know, post lockdown. I like to see someone pull that off because if you're as big as Goldberg, you've got the shoulders of Goldberg, you can pull across that short spear and make it look devastating anyway. It was a yeah. nice way to carry So I kind of like that. Yeah, everything else about it was a fucking joke. And you have to expect that from Mongo, don't you, Dean, given our new favorite Twitter account that's popped up. Ah yes. Um, now what's uh, what's it called again? Um, Mongo. Oh god, it's I'm forgetting the name. Yeah, we've got to get Mongo. It it's got a different tag to the name, but we will get it because we've we've been tagged in a. We're we're very kindly linked to a lot of cool WCW stuff by a lot of the fans. We're seen as celebrities in the WCW fandom <laughs> world now, apparently, because everyone tags us in all these awesome tweets. <laughs> and one of the ones we saw recently was these amazing ones. We've got to just go, right. The, uh, let me just uh, let me just get it. Um, we have to plug it. We, we, we'd be wrong not to plug it. They're basically it, the premise is to kill Ty. The premise is it posts uh, hilarious Mongo videos. Anything with the Mongo is going to be hilarious, isn't it? I would have thought that. Ah, what's it called? Um, what will Mongo do next? Is that it? Yes. What will Mongo uh-huh. do next? As that at that's our Mongo. That's <laughs> our Mongo. That's that's the tag. Yeah, at that's our Mongo, and it's called What Will Mongo Do Next? Um, and it's right and it, up there with Rick Rude selling atomic drops. Yeah. Another great Twitter account. It is. Um, yeah, well, I don't think anything will beat Rick Rude's um, atomic drops. But this is this is a close this is a close second yeah at at that's our mongo there hey, it is. Have you seen the late the latest one? I have to so they've put up a clip of is that is that the renegade? Do you remember him? Yeah, uh, we've and got they're wrestling the horseman, and he's gone up to the top rope to finish off Flair, and Flair is saved from the renegade by Mongo. He's trying to hit him with that famous Halliburton. <laughs> he said, he throws it between his legs. He throws it between his legs as he stood on the top rope. He's at the Rock and Roll Express as his teammates. And Renegade still sells it. I think it might be. There is is a new one. There is a new one since then, which is him in a tag match with Benoit against. There's Lou. Oh, it's it's the Horseman. It's it's um it's Flair, Benoit, and Mongo against Savage, Sting, and Luger, and basically. Luger simply, right, Mongo's got a headlock on. Luger walks him over to the ropes and just throws him off the ropes. Mongo 
stumbles, loses his footing, and somehow manages to fall between the middle and top rope and and out to the outside. Oh god! It is it is tremendous. It really <laughs> is tremendous. Um, okay, so we have another pre-taped NWO interview this time with Savage and Elizabeth. Um, Savage manages to get a few good plugs for Slim Jim in. Um, he's once again on the good stuff, Liam. Um, he basically talks a lot but says nothing. And then it's time for another uh, unusual match. Number five, it's Disco Inferno against Jacqueline. Um, Disco is the WCW television champion, but we're told this is non-title because both WCW and the Nevada State Athletic Commission would not allow an intergender match to be for a title. Um, the commentators are still banging on about Hogan potentially not showing up for the main event tonight because obviously everything revolves around Hogan. Um, Disco seems to be very reluctant to take on Jacqueline and jumps out of the ring and stalls for ages and ages and the crowd chant Disco sucks. Eventually, Jackie gets fed up with this and chases Disco around ringside and into the ring. A sunset flip gets a near fall, and you can tell just from that that the crowd is totally invested in this match. Um, Disco lands a drop toe hold, which is one hold we're told he can execute without striking her, which he clearly doesn't want to do. We then have another chase around ringside, followed by Jackie landing a few punches on Disco to a huge pop from the crowd. She's grounding and pounding him. Disco then threatens to leave and walks down the aisle, but Jackie pursues him, smacks him from behind in the back of the head. The match returns to the ring. Disco gets crotched on the ring post. Then um, she takes over on Disco again with a vertical suplex on the floor and a DDT in the middle of the ring to another sizable pop. She hits a top rope cross body block, but Disco rolls through for a two count. As he complains, Jacqueline gets a schoolboy roll up for the three count. In nine minutes, 39 seconds. Adam, what did you make of this one? I like this one. It was a good storytelling of a match. Like, Disco obviously didn't want to strike a woman um, and or couldn't strike a woman, so it was a very good uh, cat-and-mouse game. Um, I like the Disco Inferno gimmick. It was a good... It was a it was a quirky gimmick. Reminded of the Muscles Mansell gimmick, really. It was a good, quirky <laughs> gimmick. Um, no, again, it was a good match. Uh the, again, the storytelling of it was absolutely outstanding, and the finish was was I didn't see that coming because I thought Disco was going to go over, but um with the with the high cross from Jacqueline, who reminds me of the ultimate. You remember the ultimate bitch from Hammond? Yes, Lockdown. I do. Yes, she yeah, was hard yeah, as nails Jack- as well. reminded me, yeah, reminded, yes. me, reminded me of Jacqueline. So, yeah, but um no, I, I did like this match with the um it was good entertaining from Disco. Disco made the match effort, uh, I think. I mean, I've I've got to say, it didn't feel, watching it, it didn't feel anywhere like 10 minutes. No. It, it felt a lot shorter, which is credit to them for keeping it interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, again, that's to do with the storytelling from Disco and then just the... the um, And you could tell that the crowd were on it because they, they wanted Disco to wrestle her, didn't, didn't mm. they? But yeah, and, and that... Just kept refusing, and that, that made the, uh, the psychology of the whole match. Yeah, and that pop just for a sunset flip was yeah. <laughs> never heard anything like oh, that. I know, brilliant. Yeah. How, however, and I'm sure Liam, you'll have some thoughts on on this. We have basically had our TV champion get totally dominated on a pay per view match. Yeah, like the, the the story coming into this one was that they apparently they wanted Disco to lose to Jacqueline. Uh, I'm not off the top of my head exactly sure when it was exactly. But they wanted this to happen sooner than Halloween at 97. 
Disco Balked, and I think he was even temporarily fired. And one the uh, one the conditions of him coming back was he take this loss, which is like another example of the ridiculous stubbornness that Eric Bischoff had. Considering that another backstory of the title versus mask match was that they wanted Ray to lose his mask in that match initially, and yeah. in, in in a rare case of actually backing down, I, th- I think the agreement was that they wouldn't do that there. But Ray had to promise that they would unmask him at some point in the future. And lo and behold, 18 months later, he was getting emasculated by the Outsiders. So, yeah, there, there's so many ridiculous, stubborn acts of Bischoff going through his times where he really would uh, go up against his own talent. But apparently this was one of them. And yeah, they, they, like, the, the way they worked the crowd was really good. And it's a great example of it covering up what was otherwise a really shitty match to him it's because from a pure wrestling standpoint it was it, it wasn't aesthetically pleasing oh god no but this was this was the entertainment portion of the show yeah yeah and it's funny how disco always maintains when you see him like speak about wrestling tweet he says you know wrestlers shouldn't take themselves too seriously and this that and the other and i'm, I'm thinking to myself yeah you don't want to take themselves too seriously because you got fucking done over in this shit and you, you want everyone else to suffer the same fate but there's there are absolutely wrestlers who should take themselves seriously not too seriously but yeah. uh and there are and there are wrestlers who are, are well fit in this sort of role like you santina morellas and things like that but but yeah it's funny to see his his outlook on wrestling is that basically everyone should be like him and like with a lot of things, you need, you need the contrast of the silly and the serious, and that's what makes them both work. They complement each other. Definitely. Absolutely. Yes. You can't be all the same. It'd be boring. Yeah. Groove Armada said it best. If everybody <laughs> looked the same, we'd get yeah. tired of looking at each other. Well, it was yeah. is, is what um, what Guy Evans was saying about um, what he was learning about booking, and it's the same that Brian Dixon said about yeah the buffet analogy that you want a little bit of everything in the in the show, and I think you certainly get that on Halloween Havoc '97. Okay, we go straight into the next match. The main events are starting to get rolled out. This is for the WCW United States Title as Kurt Hennig defends against Ric Flair. This match came about from Hennig's heel turn on Flair and the Four Horsemen in the Horsemen the NWO War Games match at Fallbrawl the previous month. Um, Hennig comes out in a Nature Boy robe with the sleeves cut off, which he'd previously taken from Flair. A robeless Flair then comes running down the aisle and starts punching and chopping Hennig, who's still in the robe. It's an intense start. Um, warning, Flair is wearing red. Will the Ric Flair wearing red code still apply? We shall see. Um, Flair starts working on Hennig's leg and knee in preparation for the figure four. Hennig is still in the stolen robe. Flair then retrieves his robe from Hennig, puts it on himself before discarding it, but Hennig then starts to dominate after hitting Flair in the head and worsening the head injury that Flair had suffered at the War Games match when he got the cage door slammed into his head by Hennig. Um, Hennig tries to sandwich Flair's head between the ring post and the steel chair, but his chair swing misses as Flair dodges out the way. Um, Flair starts to then take over on Hennig as uh, Shivani on commentary says how he's fighting for the honour of his good friend Arn Anderson, who of course gave his spot in the Horseman to Hennig. 
The title belt itself finds its way into the ring. Flair tries to suplex Hennig onto the belt. He then puts Hennig in the corner in the Tree of Woe, wraps the belt around Hennig's head and stomps it, which leads to a disqualification in 13 minutes and 57 seconds. So I guess Flair wearing red and he lost. It, uh, the Ric Flair wearing red code does indeed still apply. Um, he then decks the ref and continues to boot Hennig in the head as the rest of the WCW referees come down and Flair takes them all on. Um, and then we get the B-team level members of the NWO come down to take their man Hennig away. Um, Adam, what do you think of this one? This one I did like. Um, it was a good brawl. It wasn't a typical Flair match, um, uh, but I'd, I'd loved it. It was just a just, it was a brawl slash wrestling match, if you understand what I mean. So it had a little yeah. bit of both in there, which I quite liked. And the, again, the pace of it was there, and the storytelling was there. Um, just Flair being eccentric and selling, and Kurt hanging being absolutely on point to uh, working with Flair. And I just it was, again, I, I I loved this match. It was a good match. I liked it. Good storytelling. Yeah, me too. I was a huge fan of this as well because. Uh... Yeah, you think about it, this this pay-per-view is one month removed. The very previous pay-per-view was Full Brawl, War Games, and that was the moment of Kurt Hennig's betrayal, and he, he, he slammed the cage door on Ric Flair's head as well. And so it makes total sense for Flair to come. So, you know, we've not even hit the uh, bah, bah of his entrance theme, and he's, <laughs> he's in the ring, and he's making a beeline to Hennig, and I appreciate that beat. Because if, you, if you've watched enough Ric Flair matches, you know how slow and deliberate his entrance is and how big the build-up to that first drop of the, of the music is. So for him to be in the ring and going for Hennig like right at that moment, it really does hit you uh, in, the eye, in the eyes and the ears. Um, and I love the finish, the fact that he's just grabbed the belt and he's, he's trying to maim him because... As far as everything has gone in the storyline, that is a satisfying conclusion for Flair. He doesn't want to pin him for the US title. He wants to take his fucking head off. So I appreciated that. And it was a good bit of revenge for Flair. And it's funny because for the longest time as a WCW fan, you know, this is over 20 years old now. And I always debated whether or not this was the right thing to do here or whether or not this should have been the build. You know, you had that moment at football. Do you build to Flair Hennig as one of your marquee matches at Stargate? You would think to yourself that, you know, if, if WWE did that big angle three months before WrestleMania, they're absolutely going to do the blow-off match at Mania, not at, like, No Way Out or Royal Rumble. So um, I always wondered, yeah, should they have done this at Starcade and had Ric Flair win the match? And I think to myself, you don't really want the US title on Ric Flair. It would be a redundant move to put it back on him. And DDP at this juncture was more than ready to, you know, he was a good person to put the United States title on next. And that's exactly what he did. Starcade 97, our first episode. So uh, after reflection, my, my opinion, it changed. And I, I think this, uh, this, almost Wild West, you know, beat him up and walk away with a smirk on your face, with a bit of a poignant bit of retribution, very Red Dead Redemption-y. Uh, I, I kind of dig that more and more, and I think, yeah, move on to DDP at Starcade, drop the title there, makes more sense. So, yeah, I'm very happy with this. The more, cool. more and more we get away from it, I'm even happier with it. 
Okay, so we then go to Mean Gene. He's on the ramp with JJ Dillon of the WCW Executive Committee. Gene reiterates the demands by, made by Hogan and Bischoff. Dillon says that the advertised match is going to take place as advertised. Bischoff then saunters out and asks Dylan the age-old wrestling promo question of who the hell do you think you are? Um, Dylan then produces a piece of paper, but we're not told what it is, which is rather useful. Um, Dylan intimates that Sting can still show up. Bischoff says if Sting turns up, they're taking over Nitro. Um, it's left there. We go on to match number seven. Larry Zabisco is your special guest referee as Scott Hall with six on his in his corner takes on Lex Luger. So during the intros, Shivani says they have a copy of this piece of paper and just is about to explain what's said. Um, he then interrupts him and we never find out. Uh, Luger seems to get the longest pyro display ever coming down to the ring. Um, this one has a slow and deliberate start, and I'd imagine it will have a slow and deliberate middle and end as well. Um, where's Kevin Nash at this point, Liam? Is he injured? Is he uh, on vacation? What? Yeah. Where's? Oh, I'd, I'd have to double check. I think. No, I don't. He's, law of balance of probabilities. He's probably injured, but hey. Um, but literally nothing's happening in this match. We have a long sequence with a sort of a bow and arrow type hold, then a sleeper. Um, Six is constantly complaining about Zabisco's refereeing. Hall gets into a shoving match with Zabisco. He charges at Zabisco, who backdrops Hall over the top rope. So uh, I do think that Larry should then disqualify himself. Um, Bischoff comes down. So Larry literally boots him out with a kick to the chest. Um, Dusty is going mental on commentary at this point. Luger takes over on Hall. He signals for the torture act, but Bischoff distracts Zabisco, which allows Six to run into the ring and nail Luger in the back of the head with a kick. Um, Hall sets him up for the outside edge. Larry hesitates, but eventually slow counts to three to give Hall the win. Zabisco then says he wants to see a replay of what happened on the big screen. The replay plays. It shows Six's interference, so Larry restarts the match. Hall shoves Larry. Larry shoves him back into the torture act from Luger. Luger gets the win in 13 minutes and two seconds. The three NWO members uh, then start beating up Zabisco and Bischoff roundhouse kicks Larry in the back of the head and Hall counts the three as Bischoff puts his foot on Larry's chest, which sets up their match, which we reviewed in episode number one for Starcade 97. Um, Adam, your thoughts on this one? Thoughts on this one? Okay, uh, with this one, it was a good use of Larry. Again, there was weren't just two wrestlers in there. There were three wrestlers, weren't there, inside the ring because there was a the story had to be told with Larry Zabisco being the special guest referee, which um, they all did fucking great with it. Um, so it weren't just uh, the match. Uh, weren't Hall weren't just against Lexi. He was against sort of Larry as well. And Larry didn't weren't a fan of weren't a fan of Hall because they had a bit of a, a history between themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a good 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 story with Hall being on Larry and Larry being on Hall. And then, of course, uh, the finish. I think Eric nearly fudged to finish. Um, distracted Larry at some point, I think, or um, with with this one, it nearly fudged it at the end. Um, but yeah, I, I did like it. It was a good one. But I mean, the, I think the the story, the storyline of the match, the narrative of the match, saved what 
what happened or what didn't really happen between Hall and Luger in the ring. They kind of didn't seem to be no. that bothered, did they? No, no, not really. No, I mean it was it, it was just slow and it was deliberate. It was slow and deliberate match, wasn't it? It was a simple match. Um, very good use of Larry getting the heat, I suppose, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And that's that's how you would go and work it. That's how yeah. I'd work it anyway. So. Fair enough, Liam. Yeah, so in this day and age, we just have an absolute overabundance of places we can go to read up on results of wrestling events. And don't get me wrong, there were places you could do that in 1997 and the early years of the internet, but now it's everywhere. Everyone's got a site. Hell, we've got a site, hookedonwrestling.co.uk, by the way. Go check it out. So there's always places you can go and read up on things, and that's created a culture in the fans, whereas we will now debate whether or not something is worth watching and actually checking out the whole match and watching it unfold, or whether or not we will just be satisfied with uh, having a quick read of what's happened. So we know what happens. And my word, was this match ever a great example, a poster boy, for just read the fucking results and don't watch the match? Because as you <laughs> said, Dean, there is... <laughs> There is storyline developments here. They, they've got the big thing going. We are building to Bischoff versus Sabisco, which is the big non-wrestling style heads of WCW versus the NWO part of it, which has been done. You know, you'll get like managers of two factions go at it in a tuxedo match or whatever. They're going for that sort of aspect of it. Um, and we won't get into how they completely fucked that up at Starcade. Check out our first episode for that one. <laughs> But we are building to that. Scott Hall's involved. You know, they've got to have Luger somewhere in a big match on the card. He's not long dropped the title back to Hogan. He's obviously still a key player. So they've got all these components. They need to make these things happen as part of the story. But it's really not worth watching this actual chapter of that story. You just need someone to tell you what happened so you can move on to something else. That, that, that is seriously, you know, I, I got more out of reading up the someone's recap of of Halloween Havoc and reading the chapter that cover this match, then watching the match because, as you guys have already mentioned, it was, it was just so bad. It was just so nothing. You know, there, there, there's, there's a, a distinct um, category for terrible things. I suppose that's more Mongo's territory, but this was just so nothing. Okay, well let's let's do that and move on to the next <laughs> match, then, which is actually um, what we do. We do go straight into the next match, which probably means we're running over time. Um, and no, it's time that's for the next year. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. That, oh God, yes, of course. That is the, uh, Yeah, that that really did run over time. Yes. Um, so it's time for our Las Vegas Sudden Death match. No pinfalls, no submissions, no countouts, no DQs. The only way to win is for your opponents to be unable to answer a 10 count. So it's a last man standing match. But thank you to Tony Schiavone for actually explaining the rules, which, let's face it, WCW didn't always do. So match number eight, Las Vegas Southern Death Match, Randy Savage with Elizabeth versus Diamond Dallas Page. Don't take the phrase deathmatch too literally. There'll be no staple guns or thumbtacks in this one. Um, Page has his ribs taped up from a previous assault from Savage. The match starts on the outside with Savage targeting those ribs. 
Um, Savage's weightlifting belt has snap into it on the back. Another Slim Jim reference. This man knows his corporate. Um, later on, Savage leaves the ring, but Page follows up with a plancher, but lands ribs first onto Savage, which I thought was a really nice touch. Um, DDP later gets thrown out of the ring. Savage follows up with a trademark axe handle to the floor. DDP then gets thrown over the guardrail into the crowd. Security having trouble keeping the fans back. They then fight through and past the crowd and to the side of the entranceway. Savage then gets thrown into multiple tombstones on the entrance ramp. Um, by by that I mean actual tombstones, um, not the uh, not the move. Um, it is Halloween after all. Back in the ring, Savage takes one of the TV cameras and tries to hit Page with it, but Page kicks it back into Savage's face. I'm really hoping at this point that that's a gimmick camera, but knowing WCW and knowing what Guy Evans told us about their finances, it probably wasn't. Um, Miss Elizabeth then hops up onto the apron and smashes what looks like some sort of glass or perspex tray over the ref's head, knocking him out. And kudos to the ref for selling it better than Nick Patrick could ever dream of. Um, she then starts choking Paige with a camera cable before Kimberly runs down and drags Elizabeth to the back by her hair. Nick Patrick then comes down to replace the KO'd ref and administers the count on both men as the crowd chant for DDP. Paige hits what looks like a sort of a Styles Clash before the Styles Clash came about and then tries for the diamond cutter but Savage grabs the top rope. Paige lands badly. Savage slowly clambers to the top and delivers a weakened version of the big elbow. Both men are getting counted. Savage then lands a second elbow straight into DDP's ribs. Paige just about makes it to his feet at nine and three quarters but then nick patrick gets savage's boot in his face accidentally from a body slam page nails the diamond cutter but both men are down a groggy patrick counts page is then back to back with savage and he gets kicked in the groin tumbles to the floor sting then comes to the ring with a bat and hits page with it but it's made clear by shivani that it's a bonus bogus sting and you can see the plastic mask on him um page is left lying on the floor at ringside and slim jim spokesman randy savage wins at halloween havoc 97 sponsored by slim jim in 1807 um savage then continues his assault on ddp after the match page gets stretched off as shivani wonders if ddp will ever compete again come on now tony go easy um he also says that the bogus thing was wearing hulk hogan's Boots. So there's your answer as to who that was. Savage then again attacks Page as he's on the stretcher. Adam, what do you think of this one? Um, well, yeah, I, again, it was a good match. It was a Macho Man Randy Savage match. Um, if we all know Macho Man Randy Savage's match, matches, he liked to plan every bit of it out, didn't he? So we knew so what, did Page. where it was. <laughs> Tony Page as well, yeah. Yeah, they Page. were good bedfellows for that, weren't they? Yeah, well, then the, this, the storytelling would have been outstanding on this one, which I expected it to be, because uh, with Savage being how he is and then Usain Page is. So, yeah, the story of it and the psychology of it was absolutely outstanding. And Elizabeth, that was the first time I've seen Elizabeth ever do something like that and mm. get involved in a match like that. She was outstanding. I, thought, I loved it. I popped for that when um, Elizabeth was getting involved in that. I thought, this is Miss Elizabeth. She's the first lady of fucking wrestling. And she <laughs> don't do things like that. The only thing I saw her do was rip her skirt off at SummerSlam 88. And how got her. And as a young kid, you were sort of it to play fast forward and rewind back then, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but we were no, I, I, 
Yeah, so, so I was going to say, we were discussing this on the Nitro watchlongs recently. We've just yeah. got to the point where Elizabeth has turned heel, ironically, on the Macho Man, sided with Ric Flair in early 96. And I said to Dean, uh, without, without objectifying too much, you know, all, all, all people who are, who are that way inclined would find Miss Elizabeth from the old days absolutely stunning, absolutely beautiful. As with a lot of the, 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 the gorgeous valets you've seen throughout the years, in wrestling but there was something yeah. about I- I- Elizabeth and others who would turn heel and start getting more involved and they'd have a bit more swagger about them they'd suddenly get so much hotter or well, at least that yeah. was my perspective and yeah so Elizabeth, Elizabeth was hot yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it just and she yeah, was absolutely. gorgeous before that but it went through the roof when she turned heel and started getting involved and sneaking weapons and cutting promos and stuff it was just like yeah Trish Stratus was another great example 2004 she she was always Ooh. gorgeous yeah, yeah yeah next level when she turned yeah well, yeah absolutely but no yeah I, I did pop for elizabeth doing that uh for ddp um i think kimberly had to come and spoil it so i thought oh, <laughs> <laughs> no i loved it good match liked it yeah this was a very good match uh there's not too much more i could add in general but a couple of things i will go over quickly dean is uh you'll remember because we we've covered uh, shows where Paige has done this before. You'll remember his early prototype of the Styles Clash was the pancake. He did the pancake, didn't he? Oh. Uh, he would. He he wouldn't uh, trap the arms with his legs. He'd literally just lift up like a pole driver. Like a pole driver. And then, and then, and then yeah, that was one of his that, big trademark moves. Uh, I yeah. remember him. I think he used it. Uh, the previous Halloween Havoc when he beat Eddie Guerrero. That was a, an, another half-decent match I remember covering of his. He definitely used the pancake there because I think Guerrero was running the bad ribs angle. He might have even had re- re- actual injured ribs or something. And they Did, the did you notice um, Savage's ring gear? It was like red and yellow on it as well. Like the Slim Jim advert as well. You know, the yes, Slim Jim. yes I noticed that. I thought it was a Hulk hogan but then I thought, no, it's got to be the Slim Jim. Well, the uh, previous advert. year, we did uh, Havoc 96 with Mike Quackenbush a couple of years ago, and he was in the main event against Hogan, because at this point it was still like from when Hogan turned on Savage, formed the NWO in the first place, and he had just the most gloriously nauseating, full-on, do you remember that one? I think we actually put it as the, the photo for the episode, of, of Savage getting interviewed in his full Slim Jim gear, like orange and black. And like, yeah, he had some, he was getting in the mentions here at 97, but it's nothing compared to 96, well, I suppose oh, it's a hill now. So, do, do I remember that outfit? It burned into my retinas forever. Oh, long. man. And <laughs> I did, and I did at least appreciate the fact that they started um, showing like a long suffering groan about the whole sting thing rather than trying to play oh look it's sting oh what do you mean it's at least they're actually coming out and saying yeah i think that's a fake sting because at this point the whole come out disguised as sting thing was beyond cliche it had run its course just move on to sting himself actually wrestling the new world order it should be at this point uh thankfully that'll be the last we see of that in this show won't it then oh god yeah absolutely yeah, no more fake stings so at least they've got that out of their system 
Yeah, they've, they've done yeah. that now, yeah. yeah. So um, we throw back to the commentary desk to give us time to sort the cage out. Shivani finally explains that the piece of paper that Dylan had was simply the contract that Hogan had signed for the match originally, which meant he couldn't pull out of it. And uh, here comes Michael Buffer. It must be time for the main event. So it is our steel cage match, Hollywood Hulk Hogan v. Roddy Piper. Um, and as we said, Hogan is the WCW world champion. This is one of the biggest shows in WCW's year. But and it's a grudge match, but it's not for the world title. Um, Hogan comes out alone and without the title belt um, around his waist. We also see that we have a WWF style big bars cage as opposed to the usual wire mesh cage normally used in WCW. Um, this cage also surrounds the ringside area too. So like a Hell in a Cell cage, they can fight at ringside as well as in the ring. There's and, no roof to it. Yep. And yep. What, what debuted three weeks before this show? Hell in a Cell by any chance? Yeah. So, yeah. T- tell Take me that a my instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's no roof to it, but it does look exceptionally high. I'd say it's probably twice the height of the ring itself. So it's probably a legit 15 to 20 feet high. Um, I'm imagining that the um, the bars were there because it made it easier for them to climb up and do the spots that they do during this match. Um, Piper comes out in possession of the world title belt with NWO sprayed onto it. Piper is announced as representing no organization or affiliation. So um, Hogan tries to climb out of the ring and gets bitten on the arse by Piper. And yep, the first move of this match is a bite to the arse. Uh, Shivani... Shivani points out that there's no referee inside the ring, just Hogan and Piper, which does prompt the question of how the hell do you win this match? Because unlike the Las Vegas sudden death match, no one's bothered to tell us how you win this. Um, Hogan then tries to get out of the cage and Shivani says if Hogan escapes, it's over. Literally, as Shivani says this, Piper waist locks him and pushes Hogan out of the cage. Shivani tries to cover himself by saying that that doesn't count because both men exited the cage at the same time, even though Piper is obviously behind Hogan because he had a waist lock on. So once again, we ask the question, how the hell do you win this match? Hogan slams the door onto Piper's head numerous times just one month after the Hennig Hill turn to completely lose any impact of that move. Hogan then says that's it and starts to leave but then Sting appears in the aisle well assuming it's Sting and that stops Hogan in his tracks Piper then goes on the offense they re-enter the cage as the two men are climbing the cage a second Sting joins the first Sting in the aisleway Hogan and Piper are now near the top of the cage structure, which is wobbling. And I've got to say, I'd be absolutely terrified if that was me. Back at ground level, Hogan starts whipping Piper with his weight weightlifting belt. Um, he tries to climb over the cage. Dusty then starts to talk about what happens if he goes over the top. But then Dusty stops himself because not even he knows what the rules of the match are. Hogan is then stopped from climbing over the floor by one of the stings. They're straddling the cage as another sting slowly walks to the ring. And another one starts walking down the stairway in the crowd. Is that like this... four stings now? Does it four? I, th- I make it five different stings. I thought oh, five it was four. Stings. I thought it was four, but I think we have two different stings down two different aisleways. Oh, I I say it's, yeah, they say it's five on the commentary. Right. Um, 
Hogan lands two leg drops. He calls the referee Randy Anderson into the ring to make a make a count, but Piper kicks out at two, which then makes me wonder why the ref isn't in the ring to to start with, and I'm just confused at this point. Then Savage comes down and climbs to the top of the, this enormous cage while Hogan holds Piper's arms behind his back, but Piper moves and Savage. Barely grazes Hogan, but seemingly manages to knacker both of his knees by landing feet first from such a height. Although, having said that, he didn't look like he missed any dates because he wrestled on Nitro the next night. Um, Piper throws Savage out of the ring and clamps on the sleeper hold on Hogan. Now that we actually have a referee in the ring, he raises and drops Hogan's arm three times and declares Piper the winner. Then Bischoff and one of the Stings enters the cage. Hogan pulls the mask off the bogus Sting. Don't know who's under there. Don't recognize him at all. Um, The crowd chant, we want Sting. Hogan, who was unconscious moments ago, has now made a miraculous recovery and handcuffs Piper to the cage as Savage punches Piper repeatedly. A fan in Sting face paint quickly climbs the cage and so the camera focuses on him and the commentators talk about him to obviously deter anyone else from ever thinking about copying him um hogan and savage drag him into the ring and continue to beat him up doug dillinger and his team are trying to hold him while savage is still trying to kill him this is just bizarre i mean the camera should be ignoring all of this um the show goes off the air with piper still cuffed to the cage and the fan being dragged off and basically everyone has now forgotten that hogan lost the match clean just a few moments ago so we'll come back to the fan stuff because we had plenty of uh, unwanted fan interactions in our hammerlock days we'll come back yeah we'll come back to that in a minute the match itself though adam what did you make of this what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much no further questions yeah (laughs) Yeah. have a good evening everyone yeah Yeah. really this was the main event hogan and piper Uh, okay and how again how the hell do you win the match it's like there's no uh, there's no logic to it Absolutely no logic to it. The, the most daring thing I see Savage do was jump off that cage. He had to clear the floor and the top rope at the same time from that height. Fuck that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got nothing more to say on it. It's just like, no, I couldn't. <laughs> and Liam, what about and, you? I, th- I think he summed it up, really. But yeah, yeah. Was, <laughs> I, th- I think one thing I'll add on top of this is, is that, yeah, there, there have been other matches... Throughout the course of history, of course, there have been matches with this amount of catastrophe. There have been matches where they set the tone where the first move is biting on the arse. There have been matches where they spend three quarters of it slowly crawling around the bloody cage. There have been other matches where they completely throw out the logic of it by walking out the door of the cage within minutes there have been matches this pathetically slow with this amount of botched spots there have been matches where someone has decided to jump off a 15 foot structure and injure themselves for no real proper gain and on a side note Dean you mentioned about oh he didn't seem to miss any dates oh he'd pay for this knee injury because as much as he tried to gut through it he'd end up needing reconstructive surgery on his knees less than a year later and he was out for 9 to 10 months 
Uh, and many many people have reported that this was basically the thing that started it off and trying to work through it when the knees clearly weren't 100% made it worse I think but uh, yeah there have been other matches but most of those matches if they're like in the middle of an indie card or even on the middle of a major uh, show they are not the main event of one of the biggest pay-per-views featuring two of the people who are supposed to be the money uh, and the focal point of this promotion uh, at the height of their powers, this is such an embarrassing look for those though. And because WCW stuck to their guns and decided they needed more Hogan and more Piper in 98 and 99, it's no wonder they were fucking dead in 2001. Mm-hmm. Anyone yeah. else would cut their losses from a match like this because it yeah. is it, it's probably because of that value added because of the position it's in it probably can overtake matches that are theoretically worse than this yeah and there's not many that are worse than this there was no payoff as well it weren't for the world title either was it so Mm. what was the payoff for and what was the reason what was there any there was no logic to it was it's apparently it's it's piper winning the the feud he has with hogan apparently because you know he he came in and he beat Hogan non-title again, Starcade '96, and then it was like, right, cause he, cause he won that match, uh, you get the title match at Super Brawl. That's where Savage turned and joined the New World Order, uh, mm. and they were one-one, and this was the rubber match. But yeah, at this point, as the crowd were chanting, as the fact they felt the need to crowd the fucking place with imposters dressed like him goes, the focal point at this point of the main event storytelling in WCW is Hulk versus Sting. We've done so many diversions, and I can appreciate that. You want to extend it and all that, but we've done them all. Yo, Piper yep. was a diversion on the road to Hogan's thing. Luger taking the title for six days. We've done that. We are two months out from Starcade, and I know you need a big match. And fair enough, you, you know you got to pick some sort of big match. So what else oh. are you going to do? Other, you could maybe do like a big tag match, maybe as a main event. That's fine if it's got all the stars in it. You've got to do something. Uh, but all people care about at this point is Sting and Hogan. Yep. And it gets worse. Not only are they are they failing to see that here, but of course two months later they completely balls that up as well. <laughs> and um, I mean o- overall, overall we'll come back to the fan stuff in a minute. But overall, the um, would you say this is a, a thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs in the middle, Adam? Uh, I would say what the Met. What this the whole the whole show the whole show the whole show I say it was thumbs in the middle because um, there the, I'd say apart from the big main event you had the I would say I, there was three four matches I really enjoyed out of this uh, in this card um, the first two was a bit of a waste of time um, if it started off with the Eddie and Mysterio match that would have been great. Three matches where I think that didn't need. Um, you didn't need the Piper Hogan match. I don't. I didn't think. And the two matches at the beginning, if it started off with the Eddie Guerrero Mysterio match, it would have been a good tempo to start off the card. Um, and if it ended with the DDP and Macho Man Savage, and that would have been a great finish to a, a decent pay per view, I would have thought. But um, then other three matches didn't. Really, I didn't, 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 didn't. Didn't see no point to it. Yeah. Fair enough, Liam. Yeah, I mean, especially how it's aged on me, the Flair uh, Hennig thing. Uh, when you've got that and you've got the blistering match between Mysterio and Guerrero, I, I, for those two alone, I can't in good conscience uh, give it a thumbs down. 
but yeah, when you consider how nothing Luger Hall was, I suppose you could, you, with retrospect, you can say with a smile, yeah, it gave us that silly moment with Mongo and, and Alex Wright and all that was hilariously bad. And there was a nice pop for Jacqueline Disco. Uh, but yeah, what what does it for me though is the, the main event. At the time, you're probably thinking, and, and people were thinking at the time, because you'll remember over on the uh, other channel, at this height of the Monday Night Wars, uh, someone obviously watched... Halloween Havoc 97 from over WF side. Probably not Vince, because he's not very good at keeping tabs on a competition like that. But one of his main guys would have told him what happened. And they made the decision that they was really going to fight. Their, their next shot in this Monday Night War was going to be to really make fun of it. They had uh, Jim Cornette cut that scathing promo. That's where the age in the cage thing came from, wasn't it? And they, they really used this match as, as part of the ammunition of they are the old guys. Uh, and the legacy of this match would carry it was a, it was a precursor of what was to come from stubborn Bischoff and what WCW would do at the height of their powers rather than trying to keep it going uh, and just the legacy of it gets worse and worse and worse because if they if they'd have gone right we've we've done a stink here lads let's change tack let's do this let's do that you can look back at it and think yes yeah, a sh- that's a horrible main event one of the worst major pay per view main events ever but then you sit and think oh you know they they pick things up and there was better to come but no this this was actually a warning sign of what was to come for those yeah. and that makes it even sadder. I mean, this is this is an absolute classic WCW pay-per-view in that when it was good, it was really good. And mm. when it was bad, fuck me, it was terrible. And, yeah. and WCW at this, at this time had, been, had now got the reputation quite well deserved of having pay-per-views that had a tremendous undercard. And then you had to put up with a shit main event with the old guys, basically. And that's exactly what you, you, know, you saw with, with, especially with that, that Guerrero Mysterio match. And you know, you, the, these guys who ultimately, as we, as we talked with, with Guy Evans in our last, in last episode, these, these talented guys who ultimately couldn't ever get through that so-called um, glass ceiling. And that, that's why, you know, they, they went eventually to WWF, we're talking about Steve Austin, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, people like that. Um, so, so yeah, this this was absolutely epitomised that. Let's go back because I, I want to make a point here about this fan that climbed oh, in the yeah. cage because the way now for a for a TV show, and we've seen we've seen fans jump in the ring plenty of times, yeah. um, and generally speaking, the cameras will will not show them. They will not give them any attention though, because ultimately you don't want to encourage other people from thinking they can get a TV camera on them. And from an in the ring perspective, and you and I, Adam have both been in the ring when a fan has jumped in. Yeah. Um, you basically control them. Generally speaking, um, I mean, we've we've usually used like headlocks, choke cards, yeah. that kind of thing, just to kind of disable someone. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Savage is just 
beating the shit out of him with yeah. a punch. But the, the whole time the camera was on them, and I don't know what you guys thought, but when I was watching this, I thought this was an angle because there was so much attention on the fan and so much, you know, the, all the director had the cameras on him the whole time. You saw his face. I thought it was an angle. I thought it was a plant because he was dressed. He was in a he had his face painted like Sting as well. It was the yeah. best part of the main event, I think. That fan jumped in the ring. <laughs> oh man! Plus, did you see like uh, look more Hogan. real? Oh, it was real. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hogan's very loudly called like, "Get him in the ring," and then he's throwing these blatantly worked punches at him. Uh, that the whole thing's a mess, and that's that's the biggest legacy of. Uh, of, of, of productivity that has come from this match is that to this day people are still debating whether or not it was real but it's mm. not done them any good it was just a confusing mess I mean yeah. I suppose the whole thing with that as as I touched upon earlier is it's another thing that distracts you from the fact that you've just seen Hulk Hogan lose because not only do you have the distraction of this fan but obviously you have Hogan who has been in storyline, has been rendered unconscious moments before by Piper's sleeper, and all of a sudden he's back on his feet and handcuffing Piper to the um to the cage. Yeah, I mean, it's just, just a good distraction from a shit suppose, as well, wasn't it? Really? What yeah. A mess. What? A it mess. was a mess. Yeah. Total oh, catastrophe. Man. Right. Well. We will leave Halloween Havoc 97 there, but before we let you go, Adam, we do, of yes. course, uh, ask for everyone to who comes on to select a WCW theme tune of their choice. So you have okay. you've informed Liam of what that is. So, yes, Liam, if Liam, if you could press play and um, we will see what the tune is. But he had to do it his own way. He did it with courage, strong will. Now just look at him today. He's walked out of the shadows and he's blazing his own trail. He told him from the beginning that I'll never fail. Yeah. Now they call him the natural. natural. He's naturalist to be. They call him the natural. natural. It just comes naturally. He's the son of a son, son of a gun. The Halston Rodeo Bulldog, that's a natural one. Now he's sitting in the saddle and he's riding real high. I can hear it is the natural Dustin Rhodes. Oh, this is this is one of those tunes that gets stuck in your head. Well, it's just one of them iconic WCW tunes, wasn't it? That that came about uh, that Dustin came out to. It was just a catchy tune. And it was just it was just like a cool sort of tune to like nod your head to as he came out and you knew it was just just the way he brought and he brought the swagger to the to the song as well. It's just it's a song that I liked and it's a song yeah it was a good it was a good theme song for for Dustin uh, Rhodes. Was this off the Slam Jam album, Liam? Uh, it may have been. It was definitely from that era. 
Uh, I have to double check if it won the tracks, but it sounds very Slam Jam-esque. And it's funny, the, the, the WCW Slam Jam hallmarks of a song were basically that it would have a really catchy style. As Adam said, it is a very catchy, it suits him. It's a it's a good first few seconds for him to walk out to. It fits the, the Dustin Rose of the time. And then you start to listen to the, to the verse and the words, and you're like, what? <laughs> I think like Ma- Man Called Sting was another one where we've had like I remember Dave Penzer has been on the show and Dave Penzer on Twitter has been very vocal he, he despises Man Called Sting he said like everyone that does Dick couldn't stand that song and he actually agreed with me when I spoke to him about it I, I said like the thing is is when you've got that you know riff and Man Called Sting I thought that was pretty cool but, but as they argue when you hear the uh the, the words was just like he he does this and he does that it's just fucking awful and case in point with this some of them is just so weird that i want to know who they hired to write the lyrics because if they you you need a jim johnston like at we would have taken those songs and just like scrapped all the middle of it and just looped the, the you know the verse and the riff and it would have yeah. been all right. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if this was Slam Jam because it fits all This was, I have checked, this was track number eight of Slam Jam. Indeed it was. Oh. <laughs> He's the, the son of a son. And the son <laughs> of a gun. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I seem to remember before this that Dustin Rhodes had some kind of um, synthy guitar kind of something that sounded like a bit of a dire straits knockoff of his entrance music it was used by a few people it was the generic like good good guy southern i think a few people used it it was definitely a bit of cross-pollination in some of those generic themes in wsw as you know but but yeah it was used by a few guys i remember a team of dustin and barry windham when they were tag team champions at one point i believe coming out to him things like that wasn't it Yeah, yeah it was yeah yeah Oh man, well, good, good, good choice. Thank you very much. No problem. Right, well, that brings us more or less to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Adam. It has been very much appreciated. It's been great fun to uh, run through this show with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Liam and Dean. Thank you very much. Um, you if people want to get hold of you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on on Facebook under Adam Mansfield, and I have got a Muscles Mansfield page. I have got a Twitter account. At man's ninety, uh, at man's seventy-seven, I think I am. Um, I've also uh, uh, discovered TikTok. All right. <laughs> yeah, so I'm also discovered TikTok. So I'm on that as well. So if you want to follow me on TikTok, I'm just trying to do some crazy videos, some a bit of laugh while we're in this lockdown, in this pandemic. You know, need a bit of a laugh in your life. You know what I mean? So. And what's your name on TikTok? At, um, at Adam Mansfield on TikTok. Also awesome. on Instagram as well. You can find me on Instagram. Adam Mansfield or Muscles Mansfield or whatever, you're sure you can find me. Um, but I'm trying to keep up with this uh, social media malarkey. Being <laughs> older, I am, you know. I'm trying to keep on top of it. Ah, oh, bless you. Um, so, you're, you're doing a better job than me. And you, uh, you can, of course, find us on facebook.com forward slash because WCW or join us on Twitter at because WCW. Right, that brings us to an end of episode 62. Um, we will be back very shortly, I would think, with another Nitro watch along, most likely, Liam, don't you reckon? Yeah, we're due a couple of those, aren't we? We're, yeah, we're on a bit of a tear with it. We're heading towards 
the infamous moment where things go up to two hours. We'll see how we cope with that. But at least mm. the first few two-hour episodes will be fun. But until yes. then, we've got some more Dungeon of Doom and Alliance to end Hulkamania <laughs> to look forward to. Indeed, yes. So um, don't forget to check through our back catalogue. We've recently done some interviews with uh, the former manageress and real-life wife of uh, Steve Austin, Lady Blossom, Jeannie Williams, Jeannie Clark. Uh, and uh, just last episode, we talked to the author of the amazing Nitro book, Guy Evans. That was a fascinating interview. So until next time, this is me, the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, saying thanks for joining us, and I'll see you ringside.